Hello, my fans, friends. Welcome to the Rich Terring podcast feed, powered by ACAS Plus. Thanks to everyone who's come to see the Can I Have My Ball Back tour so far. It's been going really well. I've got a four-star review in The Standard, four-star review in The Telegraph, who once called me the worst comedy experience of the year, so that's a turnaround. Uh, people have been coming, people have really been enjoying it, and it's getting better and better. The only gigs this week are both in Pocklington, the town I was born in, near York. Uh, there's a couple of tickets left for the evening show and a few more tickets left for the matinee, I think about 4.30. But love to see you there, Yorkshire. Pop along, check richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs to see if I'm coming near to you. There are tickets left for nearly every show in the tour. I think Norwich has sold out. Uh, and a couple of gigs in London could do with your support as well. Anyway, please listen to the podcast. Do spread the news about the podcast to your friends. Listen as much as you can. Numbers are slightly down, which may affect the future of this podcast. So just leave it playing, even if you're not in the room. Love you. <laughs> now sit back, relax, and enjoy whatever it is you're going to listen to. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another Rahalas Book Club. Uh, this week is the fantastic, probably the best book we've ever had on. It's called Can I Have My Ball Back? It's by Richard Herring. Uh, and... To interview me about that is the wonderful Adam Buxton. Now, I'm taking control of this conversation. Yeah. I'm turning the tables on you, Richard what? Herring, in your own parlour, in your own <laughs> book club, because you are the author. How do, and I'm, I've got a lot of good questions. I've interviewed many authors on my podcast. Yes, had, you have. Ian McEwen the other day, yeah, and now I am talking to Richard Herring, which is much better. And I've got some good questions, <laughs> okay. And I even googled good questions to ask authors, <laughs> okay. Good, I'll and send actually, me the document because I'll need that for when I'm interviewing next week's guest. Yeah, I was hoping <laughs> they were going to be a load of stupid questions that I could take the piss off, but the first place I found was a a website called Book Fox, run by a, an American author called John Matthew Fox, a young guy. And he helps authors to write better fiction and has lots of tips for writing on his website. I recommend it. And the questions he sets out, 50 questions to ask authors that aren't the usual, where do you get your ideas? What's your writing process like? What do you... 
what advice do you have for writers etc yeah his questions are very good okay um so i might pepper the conversation with a few of them good but i will start by well i started my conversation with ian McEwen by asking about his reviews yeah because i'm you know i i'm always interested slash obsessed with that kind of thing people's opinions of you their mm. judgments of what you do <laughs> and i've heard you talking a little bit about that kind of thing i heard you talking to richard iowadi about it the other day yeah how do you deal with all that are you aware of it do you seek out people's responses and reviews yeah i do i like to see everything and i don't i'm not I very very rarely get upset about this weirdly sometimes something will trigger something off in me and i feel the need to um defend myself but it's not it's often just something really off the point so i, I can sort of take getting negative stuff i think being a stand-up comedian as well you're so used to that being a possibility and delighting in it a little bit when people don't like you i i, I really think for most online you know if it's a if it's a newspaper review or a, or even an amazon review um if it gets promoted to the top like with the problem with men there's a there's a sort of internet troll who hates my international men's day thing and and his and he's got his one star review promoted to the to the top he'll be delighted to hear that that slightly annoys me but partly because he's misrepresenting um uh shelter and all sorts of things not shelter uh, refuge and everything in it i think from memory um but ma mainly it's kind of interesting i suppose if you get if you get like a big newspaper review at the moment as well it sort of feels like they're not you don't get much press coverage for a book uh, or certainly i don't get much press coverage for a book so i think if you if you're aware you're doing something that a lot of people are liking and you get one review and it's yeah this is pretty t like when i did um you could choose your friends on itv it got very nice previews and then the the review in the evening standard called it the worst thing that's ever been on television basically <laughs> which just seems so extreme <laughs> and I, and it was sort of a charming family sitcom and i couldn't work out why what had upset him so much to to go that far and that was upsetting because i was hoping to do a series of that and i and i think getting like a being called the worst program that's ever been on television is is did they actually use that phrase? It was more or less that. It was just, it was, it was so bad. And I could, you know, and, and you know, Rebecca Front had said to me, this is one of the sweetest, most charming scripts I've ever been in. And I, I love it. You know, we had an amazing cast. And just for some reason, a few people took it against it. I think because I was in it and I was playing, uh, and I was playing a guy who had a younger girlfriend who was, and they were having lots of sex. Not that we saw very much of that. I think people just thought, oh, you know, he's done that so he can kiss an actress. And blah, blah. So I think there was sort of resentment to me a little bit. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so that, that it's weird when you think it might affect the future of the project. That's the, that's the, the worrying thing about it. But, uh, you know, and, and I, I sort of like it and I like to get feedback. And there are reviewers that I, uh, that I would listen to. You know, I don't think I'm uh, the great, the, a perfect, fantastic writer. So it's, you know, if there's, or actor or anything. So I think there's, if there's constructive criticism, but I quite like seeing this. I quite like seeing on, um, you know, I go Twitter, I name search on Twitter and find out the really horrible things that people are saying. And sometimes I chip in on those. And say, <laughs> and say, yeah. Someone on, on the radio version of that sitcom, uh, I did a, I did a, uh, an episode that was an, an entirely a Zoom call, which I was aware was not going to be a groundbreaking, uh, a groundbreaking thing. 
Um, but uh, but equally, I wanted to, I wanted to make it kind of realistic to the time. And someone did a Jackie Weaver joke and someone went, oh, someone's still doing a Jackie Weaver joke in 2022. And I go, well, A, I wrote this quite a long time ago. But B, you're not meant to be thinking it's a great joke. It's just the sort of thing that happened at the time. Critics dealt with. <laughs> um, congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you. I, I would if I was leaving a thing to go on the front of the book, which I try and avoid whenever possible, <laughs> yeah. I would use the phrase bollock buster. <laughs> is that i mean you've got most of the ball-based jokes in the book but is yeah. that one in there as well no that is not in there that's that is very good um, you might end up on the front of the book against your will i might just steal that <laughs> off you you've said it i can quote it <laughs> you obviously you obviously had a lot of fun uh richard coming up with new bits of slang for your uh testicles yes and um so which ones have you got? Run me through some of your favourite ones. Well, I really like, you know, I'd always weirdly compared the testicles to a slightly less wrinkly version of the Chuckle Brothers. <laughs> and then I've also now arguably lost arguably the the funniest one. So it's, uh, you know, it's sort of that seems a very apt, <laughs> apt metaphor that's come back to bite me. I kind of liked the kiwi fruit in a hairy shopping bag. I think that was a pretty accurate representation. And 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 comparing them, uh, this is for people of our generation to. Well, it, it's they're you know they're very much the backing singers in in the band of the Testicles. If you if you're noticing them, there's something wrong because you've got the charismatic frontman. Uh, they're very much the the two blokes who stood in the back in East Seventeen doing that with their hands are the, are the Testicles. <laughs> so I think I think you know any is kind of fun to think of any. <laughs> And, and, and you know, in I wrote a book called Talking Cock. Obviously, there's lots of uh, twenty years ago. There's lots of things from my career because I have been obsessed a little bit with that area. But also, uh, weirdly, other things have come in that sort of feel slightly ironic and like fate has has directed me towards losing a testicle. Uh, so I had spent a long time coming up with euphemisms for the penis, and I think I think that was just going into it there's less for balls i have to say it was a little bit harder for balls i think in talking cock i tried to never repeat the same <laughs> descriptive word for penis all the way through the book i don't think i succeeded uh, but with balls i did think oh you know there are there are only five or six real main ones if you're using if you're not trying to get a laugh if you could talk about gonads bollocks balls you know you start you start running out of of the of the general descriptors quite easily whereas the the penis it sort of is an endless parade of uh, of euphemism, but yeah, it, it is, you know, that sort of thing is fun, and I think as long as it's as long as it's in passing, and as long as it's as long as it's not the only joke in the book, I think it is really good fun to. It's that viz thing, isn't it? It's the viz profanosaurus, which I love the sort of poetry yeah. of the gutter when you when they come up with something so good, and and I think always with that with that area, it was what talking cock was about really as well. You know, it's it's been so covered by co comedy over the years to find anything or a different way of looking at it or any different euphemism for for anything down there is a kind of triumph as a as a as a writer or a comedian so i like going into that well-worn area in many ways and then seeing uh, seeing if i can find something new in there yeah the mcsquirter twins yeah is, the mcsquirter twins is, a, is a because nice that's one. a good 80s reference as well <laughs> so that's very that's nice well, that's, and niche. the problem though you sort of realize as the last 20 years have passed so quickly <laughs> You do a reference to something, you know. I wanted to. There was. I wanted to reference Roland from Grain Chill in something recently. I just thought nobody under fifty is going to understand what 
45 maybe no one's going to understand what you're talking about I was going to call Ronan someone maybe it's I can't remember it. Right, it was Ryland. I was going to talk about Ryland instead yeah. of Ryland. <laughs> I just thought no I, that, one's going to get it. That phrase was one of the ones that I just used to use more or less every day. <laughs> why, why are you so fat, Roland? And um, <laughs> I think that's what she... There was a character in Grange Hill who actually said that to this character who was uh, large and um, played by an actor called, I think, Erkan Mustafa. That and is correct. She, and she she would say to him, she was trying to be nice to him. She was trying to be one of his allies. And she, but she would say things like, why are you so fat, Roland? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the book is about your brave battle with cancer. And I'm not obviously saying that ironically, um, but I'm using the. I'm using the prescribed cancer parlance, yeah. which I do believe is now gradually being discredited. I, I hear from more and more people who get cancer that they don't really appreciate having the whole thing characterised as a battle. No, and it isn't a battle, and it's and in fact, if it is a battle, it's one that you're entirely passive in because it's it's you know it's a battle for the medical professionals who who save your life or who sort it out. But really, once you once you've got certainly, with, I don't know the experience of any other cancer, obviously. But with testicular cancer, it's very much I lay back and let someone cut out my testicle and let someone else give me chemotherapy. Uh, and so, you know, there wasn't there was nothing that I did that that helped me get through this, apart from, I suppose, having a positive outlook and, and seeing right. the, the funny side of it. But I don't think that I, I, think, I think that was a way to cope rather than a way to defeat cancer. Uh, and uh, you know, yeah, it's so it's not. Uh, it, I think the problem with it as a, a as a battle is that some people get through it and some people don't, and so it sort of it implies that you're at fault if you uh, fall victim to cancer, if you die from cancer, that this somehow your fault, which obviously is not the case. So I think I think it's it's a it's a weird thing to happen, and I still find it very hard to uh, process the fact that I've had cancer, and you know, I still don't. Throughout this book, I'm I'm sort of constantly saying, yeah, it's not real cancer because <laughs> it's you know it's it's easily treatable and it and compared to other cancers, it doesn't feel uh, as extreme. Uh, but you know, it is that's what I have to keep on trying to uh, remind myself is that I actually have had cancer uh, and uh, yeah, but but yeah, I, I I'm very grateful to everyone who uh, got me through it, but I don't I can't really take any uh, credit for it. Well, it's. And, I suppose it's a, I suppose the battle metaphor is useful to the extent that a positive attitude to the whole thing and a good sense of humor is a useful weapon yeah. when you when you're in that situation or any stressful situation it is and it definitely can make a difference to to not give in to uh, a feeling of total uh, despair yeah, you know, I think I, it, I think it gives you power over something that you're sort of powerless against. I suppose so. It gives yeah. you a feel, a, a, a sensation of power uh, yes. over it, and to not take it seriously. And you know, because there's no point. I mean, you know, if you want to take it seriously, fine. I'm not saying everyone has to, to go through this in the same way. If you want to be very morbid and serious about it, that's fine. Uh, and I was morbid about it as well. But um, you know, it just it just feels like it, that has to be the response. That I think sort of it's not. It's not in any sense bravery. It's just, um, you know, this is happening and let's see. I mean, I, that, that's what this book is, really. It's sort of um, amongst the 
dark thoughts and the horrible thoughts. It's like all the funny, you know, the, when you look, stop to look at all the funny stuff that's happening around you. And it's as a comedian, as I say in the book, it's sort of, you know, you're kind of, it's the kind of thing you almost dream will happen to you. <laughs> because you think, what would I do if I went blind or if I lost all my legs or, you know, and whatever. And so having ball cancer as a comedian feels, you know, I talk about it as landing in my lap, which uh, uh, is... You know, it's very much just true that uh, that it that, that it's the funniest place that is possible as a comedian to get cancer. And as I say, for me personally, having concentrated on masculinity, genitalia, even like Hitler moustache, living as Hitler for a, a year and then ending up with just one ball as well. You know, it feels like a, a I, I did a short film about 10 years ago where my character had cut off all his genitals and, and sort of over the weekend while his wife was away. So all these things just seem to be feeding into who would be the funniest person we could give this to. But it also feels a little bit like who would be able to, you know, be able to use this information to like spread it, to spread a bit of information about it and spread a bit of laughter about it and also hopefully help other people as well, I think. which So it's, it is, it is, um, yeah, I mean, I was very positive about it and I didn't, I, apart from very early on when I was scared of, and just thought about leaving my kids behind, which was something we all fear as parents anyway. Um, I, you know, I, I, I felt reasonably positive about it, but, but it also made me, um, you know, focus on the, on what was important in life. So I, th- I think it was, it was, it was very good for me in lots and lots of ways, uh, to have this moment and also to be not that I stopped completely because I was podcasting all the way through this but uh, but to have time to just sort of stop and think as well which I think all of us in our lives especially when we're so busy we, we're just zooming on and suddenly 10 years has gone by and we haven't really thought about ourselves or self-care uh, and you know we're older men now and uh, you know it's not ridiculous the idea of a man in his early to mid 50s uh, you know pegging out and it's, yeah. quite, and it's quite it's quite good to prepare yourself for that and remember and, and try and stop it happening as well. So, you know, actively, actively kind of realize uh, your own mortality properly. Um, and, I've, you know, I've always thought about death and always been obsessed with death. But in that moment, when I got that weird phone call from the GP who'd been very upbeat when I'd been seeing him and said I was it was almost certainly not anything to worry about. And then hearing the shake in his voice as, as he obviously realised it almost certainly was cancer, but he wasn't able to say so. Um, you know, that was the moment that it that it kind of all that that was, it was really like, oh fuck! You know, I I felt like I was going to be dead in two weeks at that point. You know, yeah. And he said, "Wow, it's really big." <laughs> When he was looking at the scan, is that true? I'm not sure to what extent I've, uh, you know, I can't. I, I do remember him talking about the size of it. I'm not sure he said that exactly, but that was that was the that was certainly the the gist of what was going on. He, he was like surprised by, by it. You know, he'd you know he'd felt it. He'd felt my balls very quickly. I just met him and he felt my balls, uh, and he was very very confident that it that it wasn't cancer. Uh, mm. And that he knew what it was, uh, and so and he was quite a new GP, and I I genuinely think he was just, and he's not, and he's not at the practice anymore. Not he was actually a fantastic GP, and everyone misses him in the village, and he kind of fell out with the, the people running the surgery and thing, and, and moved on, uh, and it's a real shame because he was excellent. But I think from his point of view, it might be oh no, I told this man he hasn't got cancer, and he has probably got cancer. Uh, but you know, equally that would have been an issue if he if he'd just gone no, it's not cancer, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> 
get yeah. out, you know, go and then and then two years later, I've uh, you know, the, the the amazing, you know, the the thing about this is if you if you if you spot this cancer early enough, then it's it's so treatable, uh, and and it and it and it has an incredible survival rate. Uh, and I think it's really some of them are a much more aggressive type of cancer, so it's not entirely true. But but it's it's the people who who leave it and and think oh it's probably nothing, and 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 then it's spread a bit, and then they then you can get into trouble. So it does kill people, and it does affect people's lives in, in a bad way. So so just the fact that I was during those COVID times got into hospital within days and sort of you know and had it was a it was a month between going into the gp and having the testicle removed which is incredibly fast when you think about it about, about all the things you have to do and and during a lockdown when there was other things to worry about so you know i i'm nothing but grateful to that guy but it was it was a hairy moment but i think but again, but again i think um I'm glad. I'm glad they didn't tell me straight. You know, I'm annoyed they didn't tell me straight away that the survival rates were so good. But also, I think it did those month, those weeks uh, of thinking that you know th- that it might be that serious, that it might be you know I might have put my life in order. I think it was good to have that, mm-hmm. and it was it, it was interesting to think about my relationship with my kids and what the how they would remember me and try and you know try and try and create situations where they would remember me that kind of went wrong like when i you know I, there was a there's a chapter about me um and it's snowing and me thinking brilliant this is perfect then my daughter i remember all the times it snowed my daughter will definitely remember this my son might remember this and we tried to make a snowman and there was just cat shit all over the garden so we just made this horrific <laughs> cat shit cover and then some dog diarrhea and it was just this it was just this awful this awful you know which i'm sure my daughter would remember then she made her own snowman which fell apart and she cried uh and uh you know and it would be an awful memory uh, and it was, you know, it's just that's just so funny, you know. In retrospect, I, I, as uh, we were talking in the uh, another podcast about my blog, I, I think I would have forgotten entirely about that that incident had I not blogged it. Um, and yeah. uh, you know, and and but then going back to write the book, I went, oh my, you know, and and realizing what was going on in my mind. I remember there being a video, my wife taking a video of my daughter throwing a snowball at me, and me sort of laughing. But no, you know, as that was happening, kind of thinking, oh, this could, be, you know, this could be the video my daughter looks back at, and my face, give, you know, betrays that at least to myself that I'm sort of thinking, oh God, this is, hooray, yes, well done, <laughs> I'm dead, I'm dead now, Ooh. Um, so that's you know, the it, problem with the, having that comedian's mind, though, is that you're constantly analysing all these moments from all different angles, and they take on so much significance were you able to stop yourself googling the condition before Um, you knew more about it you know so that was the weird thing so i googled it when i when it was first happening and and i and i've really tried to look back through my internet history which is shrouded with all sorts of terrible things obviously uh, to find what i googled (laughs) what i googled originally because i googled it and and came away thinking ah it's fine it's not anything. Right. And they do sort of say it's probably nothing to worry about. But go and see your GP. Everything yeah. basically says that. And so I don't know how, you know, I was in denial or I wasn't, you know, I saw what I wanted to saw or I somehow came across a page written by a maniac that has now disappeared. Um, I didn't, I don't, I don't think I did Google it that much because I think I would have found out that the, the prognosis was pretty good. You know, I think I yeah. was, I did sort of trust the professionals and I was, well, I, you know, I was, it was a bit of a blur, I have to say. And it was a bit, 
at times, you know, time just stretched. It felt like, a, you know, it felt like ages between each part of it. When I look back at it, you go, that was five days. What you, you know, but I remember those, you know, waiting to find out, um, you know, waiting to go in, having a scan and then waiting to go in to talk to someone about the scan and then feeling like even then when I knew that it was coming out, it felt like ages. I was waiting just for the phone call to tell me when it was going to be. And mm. I decided they, you know, I'd slip between the, cause we'd done this. We'd, we'd vacillate about whether I was going to store any sperm and then decided not, we said we would, and then we decided not to. And I thought, Oh, maybe I'm still on the list of their weight, you know, and that's what I'm, and I'm getting the cancer spreading and I'm going to, you know, so I, I don't think I was Googling anything. I think it was just letting my own brain kind of be as paranoid and hypochondriac as, as possible. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I was, cause it was only after they, that it was out and they confirmed that it was cancer, which they couldn't do until it was out that the guy went, yeah, look, you, there's two types of testicular cancer, the good kind and the very good kind. You've got the very good kind. Yes. There's a 99% survival rate. You go, wait, what? <laughs> Lead with that. Like coming with that's the, that's as you're going in to get them scanned. If this turns out to be testicular cancer, you've got <laughs> one. It's still one in a, you know, I think it's still like within five years of 5% of, you know, 95% of people have survived, which is, you know, it's not insignificant if 5% of people die from it, but it's, yeah, but it's, um, or, or die within five years is not necessarily of testicular cancer, but, um, and yeah. what was the moment that you knew there was something wrong? I mean, you make the point in the book that you have been proactive and a proponent of more awareness among men yeah. of all sorts of things, uh, physical health, mental health, uh, getting your balls checked, checking your balls regularly. And yet it wasn't something that you yourself necessarily always did. No, and I, I don't think I did, you know, so I was, but I was aware of it. I, I was, I gradually became aware that there was something that didn't feel right, but I can't say that I was going every month and 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 assessing and you know so part of the problem was it felt a bit weird but i wasn't sure whether it that was how it always felt yeah because <laughs> i wasn't i wasn't you know and also that thing of you know that i did, I did jokes about that uh, lots of comedians joke about about as you get older your balls start to uh, gravity starts to, to take its effect on your balls and they start to get lower and so but i think like a, a, a bit of me was thinking oh well, that's all that's happening here when I sat, I sat on my, one of my balls, which I'd never done. I'd done a joke about doing, but it never happened. And I thought, oh, that's so. Oh, that's that happening then. Um, so yeah, it was. It, it's and even now, I still I find it hard, but it's hard in a different way now because you're sort of so scared of some of finding something that it can be it can be difficult to to look at stuff. And I think that's why I think men would a lot of men would rather not know, which is obviously insane. Uh, and and my oncologist said he was impressed. Uh, that I'd come, that I had noticed so quickly. Really, I wondered whether it was because it was so big. I thought oh, maybe I've, this has been going on for years. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, that he, that I because I'd got there before it was outside of the testicle. That I, you know, he was impressed that I was in tune enough with myself to notice. But it was, you know, it did become like hold on. I actually thought both. I thought both of them were. The, I thought both of them were feeling weird. And uh, what was it? Was it was it a swelling or a hardness or what yeah, are you looking for there? It got it got. I mean, so there's different things, and so mostly I think guys would be looking for a, a lump or something, you know. A, a, yeah, that's a, what I would think. And, and so that's and there wasn't a lump. Uh, so I, that's again not knowing. And you know, I knew that I was that it was generally a, a, a something that occurred to younger people, and I had no history of. Um, cancer in my family and, and you know, my and I, my balls had dropped fine as far as I remember from being a kid and those are the things that are the, the signals of it 
it, mm. it just it just yeah it felt a bit heavy it felt a bit heavy it felt a bit too firm and it and it just felt like it was getting bigger but you know it, it was so hard because i mean it's it so difficult uh because you know i was I, as it was going on i was just convinced it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it can't you know like even even once i knew it was happening so it's very it's very easy to to fool yourself but i suppose the lesson is even if if there's anything there that's just making you think um uh i don't like this just go and get it checked out because no one's they they're very, they're not going to worry about that and and most things so like i've got i have to, I, you know as i was writing the book i got a lump on the other one and mm-hmm. uh and i thought oh you know i was absolutely convinced that meant it returned and if it had returned that was really bad news in terms of maybe it would be spreading everywhere um and that turned out to just be a, a cyst which is what it usually is. So once you talk to men about this, most men will go, oh, yeah, I, had a, I went in and I had a cyst and oh, I was worried about this and this happened. So they're not, you know, it, it was very interesting to see the difference between a, a scan, some of the person doing the scan, uh, who, one who finds bad news and good news. And, and it's obviously a, a lovely thing to be able to tell someone, don't worry, this is fine. This is nothing to worry about. Um, but no one's going to be cross with you for, for, going, for going and getting checked. So if you if you, it's it's about getting to you know once a month you should be having just a little feel around just to check there's nothing unusual on there and just to also just to become familiar with it and and my yeah. onco- my oncologist is you know is saying like ten percent of older men uh, do get it so it's not just a young man's thing and and uh, I guess as we live longer that uh, things could go wrong <laughs> go, go more likely to go wrong as well so uh, you know it's such a simple thing and it's and it's so treatable and it would be such a shame to have died as a result of just going oh you know i'm too embarrassed to go and talk to this or mm-hmm. i know i went through all of that when i you know i don't want to bother them because it's covid times and it's just a freaky weird ball it'd probably be all right but um what you if know... i get an erection while they're checking <laughs> all of these things that would be wonderful if it happened that easily uh but um, uh yeah so it's, you know it, it's it's overcoming all of that stuff and and not um and you know the, it just eats away at you if you and obviously i found it harder the subsequent this year has been harder than last year just in terms of the paranoia and then going, I can't keep going back in and saying, is this all right? You know, like weird mm-hmm. because things have happened uh, and I've been right to go in for nearly all of them. I've been in like a couple of times and I think maybe one time it sort of has turned out to be nothing to worry about. But uh, they've all been nothing to worry about. But there was at least a cause for the other two. Um, but, you know, you start to once it's happened, I think it, it is that is then always on your mind. And that's that's a weird thing to cope with. And there's no real psychological help for that's offered anyway for, for cancer survivors. Uh, and, you know, you are constantly... I think you become aware that your body can just suddenly decide it wants to self-destruct and take you down with it. And that's a, a very weird thing to have to cope with. Um, mm. But on the plus side, they you know, I'm going in this week, uh, tomorrow, in fact, for my CT scan that I get every year to check. They check everything to just check there's nothing going on. So, you know, it does feel like, for me personally this you know this is not this has not been a negative experience because i think it's I've, i'm trying to be healthier in my life anyway i get i get like a regular checkup for five years so if anything else happens I'll, they'll be right on top of it uh and you know and, and it's it's focused my mind and obviously as a comedian it's been you know i've got a, i've got a lot of stuff out of it so it's sure, you've got it, a so book it's, out of it yeah so it's uh so it's <laughs> that's not that's not something that can happen for most people but i think it will you know i think there's a pos- there are positives for everyone from stuff like this i think and I think it, I don't think it's a bad thing to be made to 
to stop and and uh, consider, and especially if you can then be made better, then that's, that's... Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Um. The other aspect of the book is that you weave in interesting cultural ball history <laughs> and also a lot of information, general information about uh, how balls work and what they do. Um, Richard, why do we need balls? <laughs> um, I mean, it's a good question and not, not all uh, living creatures have them. So uh, they, uh, you know... They are, they're an amazing thing. And that's, again, researching this. And, I, and having written a whole book about penises, I, I neglected the balls almost entirely. Everyone that, does. And that might be why I'm being punished. My balls might have yeah. decided to punish me for, for concentrating so much on my penis, uh, which is maybe understandable. But yeah, but having looked into it, just, you know, the, 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 there is not just obviously sperm production, so we, we need them for that uh, the gametes that produce human life, which is a pretty impressive thing to start with. And the, the quantity that they create is phenomenal. Uh, and uh, is, it all, the, is the fluid actually inside the testicle? No. So the flu, I think most of the fluid comes from outside of the testicle. But I only realized this. I think I sort of knew it. But yeah, there's I think the the sperm are in the testicle and then the, something else, which are, the name of it for, escapes me at the moment, produces fluid, which then is a river that takes... Those, I think it must be a bit of fluid with the sperm, otherwise they'd just sort of flop around like trout on the floor. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, but also it, it, <laughs> it produces uh, testosterone. So you know that without though that there would be uh, you know all the all the the male uh, changes in the body wouldn't wouldn't be there, and also you would be unable to get erections. I think without uh, without assistance of some kind. And your voice is higher, hence the castrati. Yes. Yeah, so the, well, if that, that's 
Yeah, well, that's a that's a very weird. So I do write about that. That's a very you know you could write a whole book about that. I'm sure many people have, but that was a such so many weird things have happened throughout history with this, and 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 so many of the stories. I think when I went to look through, obviously the mythology is is isn't real, but but people's ideas about what how balls worked and what they did, and uh, you know stories about you know Hitler only having one ball. Nearly everything is just absolute bullshit. Uh, you know, bullshit. Near, yeah. Where do, where does the Hitler thing come from? Well, I think it comes from the song. And so, like, some. Just... I mean, but yeah, but they, were, were they just trying to? Were they just? Was it fake news? They were just yeah. trying to bring down Hitler with some uh, impute by impugning his yeah, ball it's quotient. Just, it's you know, it's that's a tactic as old as time to kind of emasculate the the enemy or make them seem, you know, not as manly. And and that's you know, it's weird that. Balls are where, are, where, are where manliness is supposedly located because they're the weakest part of your body. So there's yeah. a, there's overcompensation there. So all these things are weird. But yeah, it's a way, you know, I think they've just, that's a way to laugh at your enemy. You go, oh, there's, it's the same as me laughing at my testicular cancer. If you're being attacked by Nazis, yeah, a way to make that less fearsome and gruesome is to imagine now, that. <laughs> I want to address this ball thing. This is fake news. <laughs> fake news. I have two great Nazi balls. But uh, you know, he there's there's evidence that both ways that he did and he didn't, and so it's, it, it has become like a thing. A lot of the evidence that says he's got one ball came about, you know, has been rediscovered recently. That makes it seem quite dodgy, uh, and I think it's very unlikely that he only had one ball. I mean, he had a lot of problems, not least being a Nazi. Uh, but he, had, <laughs> I think, he had a lot of issues and sexual issues. So I think there was stuff going on. But I, I, I would say it entirely comes from someone no, noticing that Goebbels and Nobles will sound the same and work right. backwards from there. And it's very funny. So the original, the lyrics that Himmler has something similar is a very is a very funny line. So you know, <laughs> it's, but, it, but it's you know, it's it's there's there's just so much misinformation and you know the thing about for centuries people believed that you know one was the boy testicle and one was the girl testicle and you would just think that would have been you know so nonsensical and so in, easily disputable that right so in that, that one ball is responsible for producing the sperm which will lead to a a girl being yeah, produced yeah so a and female the, right. and male yeah and so you, they used to tie up one testicle to so you know they, they would produce oh. <laughs> and you would think just doing that for a you know a year or two go hold on this isn't really what you know it seems to be that uh it's still fairly random yeah so so you know but that i think that went right you know it was a greek thing but it went right through to the 18th or 19th century people were still claiming that so you know there's so it's and i found that with the cock book as well it was just astonishing you know with, the, with people didn't realize that i mean they got to the stage where they believed women were just the soil in which the homunculus that was in the sperm was was planted and that the you know the women were basically a grow bag and men put the seed in and and women had nothing to do with the the, the baby and that was right up to the 1900s wait that's not true <laughs> there's little your testicles are full of tiny adam buxtons <laughs> all waiting to um so you know so the, it was really interesting looking at that and i wanted with this book you know it wasn't just i want to I didn't want to just write about my experience. I wanted to invest. Having written this, you know, again, having written a few books about masculinity, having written this book, The Problem with Men, which was about the International Men's Day, but why yeah. why men are so insecure about this and how we actually can move forward and and create an equal world and, you know, and 
stop being such dicks. Um, it sort of was, again, weird to be, uh, you know, I wanted to look at, uh, at why balls were associated with masculinity and what, what the truth of, of all of this stuff was. And, and, and like I say, I think the, the biology of it is, and the, 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 uh, obviously the, the balls are outside the body partly to do with temperature, which is what I've always thought, but there are species that have them internally yeah. and, and equally... You know, it's not just that. So they can, they're one's lower than the other. To, I think, again, just I think the temperature might be and they're not quite sure that if it's outside the sperm will when it's in the, the vaginal tract, when it's in the birth canal will or whatever. <laughs> Terrible. I don't know about female uh, biology when it's going up to, to its goal, wherever that is, into the grow bag. I think it's uh, called it will, the goal. Yeah, it, it will notice the um, it'll notice the temperature change. And so it speed up because it's it realizes its mission's about to be accomplished like a heat seeking right. missile. So there's lots of, there's loads of interesting thing in that and the retraction, you know, they will slightly retract into the body, but you would think that they'd be better protected. Right. It, it, it seems to make no sense yeah. as to, and given they don't even have to be outside the body, why would they be outside the body? And if they are outside the body, why wouldn't they have a nice little bone cocoon, cooling little filled with little holes that would keep the air, the air coming in. You'd just think they would be better protected. So it's, I mean, there's an argument that it's um, like the peacock's feathers, that it's a, it's a display to uh, potential mates that you're, <laughs> here I am, I'm so tough and so amazing that my yeah. balls are here on display. In the, and you know... look at this great wrinkly thing I've got. Because <laughs> it's not, it, there's no real equivalent for a woman, I don't think. You know, no. it's tempting to think of the breasts as being something similar, but they're not at all because no. they're aesthetically beautiful. I suppose you could argue that we consider them aesthetically beautiful because of various quirks of culture and the patriarchy or whatever you want to call it but i mean they really look better than balls even well, if they're balls, yeah i don't think many people would say balls are aesthetically beautiful even if they quite liked them i think you would say i like what they do i like what they produce yeah uh, i don't mind licking them but they're hairy and they're wrinkly i mean so and so are you and me uh so you know it's uh it's it's a it's a real mystery. I don't I don't think that is true that they're there as a a display because I think if anything, uh, no, they look like a mistake. Yeah, they potentially laugh at them. All right, I'm going to ask you a literary question now. Oh, good. This from the Book Fox website from John Matthew Fox, advice for writers, and uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, these are sort of good, serious writer questions. Good. Do you think someone could be a writer if they don't feel emotions strongly? <laughs> uh, yes, I think anyone can be a writer. So I don't think I think, you know, I think understanding um, what it is to be human, uh, which, you know, even in negative emotions, even, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean love. It can be I, th I think you need to be able to communicate effectively and i think a lot of communication is is about emotions it's not just about words so if, if you were literally a robot and couldn't feel emotions um I, i'm not sure many books would apart from manuals on how to <laughs> make things uh and repair yourself would be that interesting so i think you know i think it is it's at least interesting to put emotions in and i think it's it's it, i think the people that i like certainly are emotionally honest in terms of 
what they write or comedians, you know, it's, and, and, and well, you know, talking to you and Pitness there, I just think that we're all quite honest men, even when the thing we're admitting to and often when the thing we're admitting to doesn't necessarily reflect brilliantly on us. So I think to I think why this book and uh, it came out very easily, you know, I, I found it easy to write. And I think it's because I was still caught up in the emotion of it. But also I think it was an emotional journey. A lot a lot of it is actually about family uh, and my relationship with my daughter, especially just because she's a little bit older and a bit more able to uh, understand what's going on, I think. And a bit more, had a bit more interesting stuff to say at this time because my son was a bit young. Um, and I, so I think the emotion in this book is a very important part of it because it is that trying to get across that the feeling that what I felt when I got that phone call because it was extraordinary what happened to me and I don't think I've captured it entirely but the... you had a sort of visceral crying response yeah but I was just overwhelmed I was overwhelmed yeah. but not you know it quickly trans it quickly turned into this sort of self-pitying thing but it, I was, was sort of overwhelmed by you know, my mortality and the, the tears were sort of weird Mm. I, I have experienced it sort of, but I've experienced when I've been depressed and there was a, so I've talked about this a bit, but I once watched, I was once at home my own watching Love Actually and I started crying um, and thought I was never going to be able to stop crying and it wasn't because of the film, <laughs> or not really because of the film. The film triggered something and, and made me think about yeah, yeah. how empty my life was or whatever it was at that time and I felt I was going to be unable to stop crying. And it was sort of a little bit like that, but not exactly like that. But it, but yeah, to to try and get that across, some people might have say, well, I I want to keep all these private moments to myself. But I think as a writer, you know, your job is to try and explain all of that because I think if you can get that visceral reaction, if you can get that connection, if um, I was watching um, Welcome to Wrexham yesterday, uh, which is a wonderful show about. Uh, Ryan Reynolds uh, taking over. Oh yeah, the Wrexham football form. thing. Yes, I, I but then, it's good. The, but they just had a bit where they just showed loads of fathers and sons, just like cut pictures to loads of fathers and sons, just looking at each other and smiling at each other. And it was, you know, it was it, it's sort of easy in a way and button button pressing in a way. But it was also so beautiful. My son was upstairs, and I was just thinking about my son, and you know, and mm. that's a, in, to to connect. I think with people via something human by something you understand. I think, I think, yeah, I think you have to, but even if it's a book full of hate, that's an emotion, right? Even if it's a book full of annoyance, even if it's, even if you are, even if you hate humanity, you still have to get that emotion down into whatever you're writing. I think anyone, I think anyone can write anything and it's up to you what you write and you don't have to put emotion in it. It can be just a dry description of what's happened. I really encourage people to write though, you know, even if, especially if you're going through something, um, I did find it, and I'm not saying I found it an entirely positive experience because it made it brought stuff up that I that I'm still dealing with, but at least it made me realise that I had stuff that I needed to deal with as well. Yeah, so I, yeah, yeah. Know, so I, th- I think it's uh, I think it's it's uh, as a comedian, I found it so I've, I've gone through various depressions in my life and loneliness and you know ups and downs and things go your way and then they don't go your way. Uh, and I've always found that being able to express any of it. Uh, is massively helpful. Equally, loads of the stuff I do is made up nonsense and just stupid, or you know, stuff I don't really think or feel, and that's still fun as well. But uh, but it's you know, it, it, it you do note those those bits that people remember and those bits that that really touch people are 
it's it's often that it's the emotion underneath it, and sometimes it's almost not written, and sometimes it's you could you just you feel it coming off the page, don't you? And it's it's very yeah. That's the thing. I think some people. I'm always referring to David Sedaris because I I find him so funny, and yet his attitude to the world and certainly to the way he writes is very different from mine. And yeah. he's much more restrained when it comes to writing about feelings. In fact, he doesn't directly do it very much at all. Right. It's all sort of implied. And in fact, um, you know, he he's superficially very harsh when he writes about upsetting things. Yeah. And and a lot of people are kind, kind of recoil, I think, from his books because they they find him so cold. But actually, for me, when I read like the stuff that he writes about with his dad, for example, who he had a fractious relationship with and then he, his dad died recently. And he just maintains that he always thought his dad was an asshole, but to me, it's clear that there's so much more to it than that. Obviously, yeah. And and there's there's a real well of powerful emotion in there between the lines, but yeah. he never he never refer, refers to it directly. Yeah, but you know, it's very hard to distinguish the human experience from from any feeling. So yeah, I think I yeah. think I think writing has to have emotion. <laughs> okay, here's another question. Uh, from the BookFox website. Do you hide any secrets in your books that only a few people will find? That's quite a good question, I think, because when I was writing Ramble Book, one of the the most amazing books of all time, I think most people would consider it now, um, there's there's definitely, not secrets exactly, but there's definitely sort of coded stuff there, which I didn't, want to for whatever reason make overt but i felt that i had to be honest in a slightly more subtle way okay you know what i mean yeah i do i don't i'm not sure there's a lot i'm sure there are things um and i'm sure there are little nods and i'm sure there are jokes that that are there for my wife and i'm sure there are jokes that are in there for you know like i i almost do that subconsciously now certainly like relativity again uh, people will tweet me, go, oh, you put a Shrek in it. You did this, you did that. And, you know, there there are these little, you did yeah. the 28 years old joke. And, you know, I almost, they almost slip in without me know, but they're there for, they're there for the fans. Um, uh, I can't think of anything in this book. Yeah. I, there, was, there was a few decisions I had to make. There was a bit where I write about my father-in-law and I'm never, I'm still not really quite, he drove me back from the chemotherapy and took this really circuitous route to get home and it really annoyed me. Because I'd said, I'd said, turn left. He said, no, no, on on the way there, I'd t- he'd gone my way and grudgingly. And on the way back, he wanted to go this other way. And I said, you've got to turn le- left here. He said, no, no, th- I'm going to go my way this this time. And it literally took twice as long as the- <laughs> to get there. Oh, and, no, that's and, uh, but I think he did it so that he could show me where he grew up. Right. Because we went we ended up going through the village where he grew up. Uh, and I'm pr- that's the only way I can make sense of it. Uh, and but then I never really talked to him about it, and I mentioned it to my wife and her brother, who both agreed with me. And I thought, should I write about this because it's sort of a funny thing that happened? And I'm very nice about him because I do think he's a, a terrific man, and I love him. Uh, and I kind of, I still kind of love him for even if he did do this. But I was aware that his wife might give him a. <laughs> she doesn't know about it. So my mother-in-law might give him a hard time for for driving me for. I was desperate for the toilet because after chemotherapy, I'd done this the biggest wee you've ever seen in your life, 
immediately afterwards. And then immediately the bladder was completely full again. So I had to kind of have this hour and a half journey home <laughs> where I was desperate for the week and I'm worried about getting my drugs in the fridge and all this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, so that's you know, the wrong. Even if it was a bonding detour, that's the wrong moment. <laughs> yeah, it was the wrong moment, but that was—it's sort of typical of, of him, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, here is uh, one more question from the Book Fox yeah. website. Mm, well, just generally, how many hours a day do you write? It's kind of a banal question, but it's yeah. always interesting, I think, to hear how people actually approach the business of sitting down and trying I think, to write. I think it is, and that's part, something that this uh, podcast really wants to get into grip with as well. I mean, you know, I always write my blog pretty much every day, so if I don't do it every day, then I'm, I, I pick up two uh, on the next day, and that's always sort of 30 minutes to to an hour of of sitting either thinking or, about something or writing something. Sometimes I can knock it off in 15 or 20 minutes, so that's, that's always the first bit of writing that I try to do unless I'm absolutely bogged down and have to do it later and when you're writing that are you just writing stream of consciousness or do you sit and revise a sentence and think about a joke or whatever it's generally stream of consciousness and so the difficulty is they're thinking of something but as i've got longer into it because there's sometimes you could sit there for three hours not thinking of anything i've just said right if you can't think of anything you just go make a decision and even if it's just a diary of i took my kids to school and the the teacher said hello uh, and then I went home and didn't talk to anyone for the rest of the day. I'll just get on with it. And then, weirdly, if you do stream of consciousness it and don't go back and revise it too much, stuff crop, crops up uh, and things come out of it. And like some of my better routines have just come out of me really struggling to think of anything and then suddenly sitting down. And then it's with stand up often, you'll be on stage and just suddenly it all pours out of you and it's brilliant. And sometimes when you're writing, you just go, blah, 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 and you look at it and you go, fucking hell, that's amazing. And with, writing, with the book, I found that sometimes you just sit down. And I found this one much easier than any of the others. I've, I usually get stopped for weeks and on a bit and then don't move on. But it just sort of poured out of me, this one. And it didn't, you know, obviously I revised it, but it didn't need much revising. But with the blog, yeah, if I revise it, it's when I go back and think, can I use this as a stand-up? Or can I use this in a book? I then will obviously then have a think about whether it's the best written it can be. But again, sometimes when you really let your emotions take over and your brain take over and don't think too much about it, what you've written is kind of pure and almost better than anything you're going to do when you uh when you consider it so uh, you know i think at its best what i'm really trying to get into which i still find really hard is just write as much as you can and yeah. don't worry about the quality of it and i that i find that absolutely and i've got a quote from uh the guy who wrote the simpsons john schwartz and something uh, schwarzfelder so yes that's it who's uh that's his philosophy is just get the stuff down just write as much as you can and don't worry about it don't worry if it's terrible and and forget that inner critic and then you know and then because if you you know I I was talking to Rich Dosman at the weekend he writes a thousand words a day when he's writing a book and then goes back and revises it obviously but if you can do that you can write a thousand words a day you can write a book in three months and then spend a month re-editing it and whatever you know and obviously go back and think about it and you'll get ideas as you go. And I, I, I prefer, obviously, this book is a bit different because it was a story that I knew what the story was, which is why it was easy to write it. But I sort of prefer not to prepare too much and, and then hope it goes well. But, I, you know, in terms of how many hours a day it is, sometimes it's, you know, 20 minutes and, and I give up and so I have other stuff to do. Uh, if I'm actually writing a book, yeah, I mean, if I can write for, if I can do a good solid two or three hours, I think that's an amazing, yeah, absolutely amazing day. I can't, and I don't think you know should you know sometimes when you're a deadline, you'll write for 
14 hours in a day and it's pretty hellish. But if you can get, I, I just wished that throughout my whole life I could have written two hours every single day. And I just think of the amount of stuff I could have produced, you know, because it's... But but I think you also do need the the burning impetus of uh, a deadline and you do need, you know, it's obviously it's easier to write a book if you know it's going to get published and someone's it has to be there for someone. Uh, you're and you're aware that people are going to read it, so you want to make sure it's as good as possible. Uh, but it's it's very difficult to to you know I can't even really remember the process of this. I know the week I got COVID, I I got a lot done because it wasn't very bad COVID, and and I was in a room and I didn't have to do any of the other stuff that I have to do in my life, uh, and then it became a lot easier. I think now I've got kids and a family, if I can grab an hour here or there in the day and and sit down and not be disrupted by emails or doing a podcast recording or whatever yeah yeah then then it's pretty amazing that's the thing isn't it is trying to clear away disruptions it's the thing that um uh, all writers who've had any success always say is you've got to have a place where you're not going to be disturbed i mean i think that it's true that you don't have to write any specific length of time if you just write something for 10 minutes then that's better than not writing anything at all i know people who give up writing journals or diaries because they think they have to write loads yeah and they miss a day and then they can't catch up because they think oh i've got to write loads and i haven't got time but that's wrong you know you can just put down bullet points or just one sentence or it doesn't matter really and if you've got more to say then great and it's so, you know, it's so, I so regret that I kept diaries on and off. And I so regret the time I didn't do it because the stuff that's there, even if, you know, even in the young, the, the teenage ones, you know, there's days that are awful or boring, or, but it's so great to have it. As you get older, you just forget everything. You know, like I look back at a blog from a year ago and can't remember the thing happening. Oh, seriously, I know I can't have no memory of it. And then the, the blog might make me go, oh, oh, yeah, that happened. But And I watch TV shows and completely forget them and can watch them again two years later easily and not know what's going to happen. So it's it's so good to have it. And if, even if it is a line going, I did, this is the day I did this, yeah. that's enough to go, oh, God, yeah. And, you know, as I say, within, if you're writing autobiography, but even if you're, you know, if you're not, for both this and um, How Not to Grow Up, the blog was just i mean for how not to grow up i only got through it because i was able to copy and paste you know a whole load of blog entries and then and make and then craft that into a into the central part of the book so it's so you know you won't regret it and and certain when i've gone back and done things like headmaster's son you know having teenage diaries um you know i just wish i'd got it for all those all the gaps where i didn't think what i was i'd love to know what was in those gaps and what i was thinking and which girls i was failing to talk to in yes those i know <laughs> you said it sometimes i think like if you haven't got an account of what you're doing with your days then it's almost as if you didn't live those days you know what i mean <laughs> i mean that isn't true and i don't really believe that i think you know a lot of life takes place in the moment and it has value otherwise you'd be totally desperate on your deathbed but um <laughs> Um, if you were, if someone told you that there was a pill that you could take that really focused your mind <laughs> and put it in the best condition to write, 
yeah. would you start taking that pill? I think that's sometimes like, because I definitely have days when my brain is foggier than others. And sometimes I feel quite clear headed and can express myself well. Other days, I just despair. I just think, uh oh, there's something wrong with me. I can't string a sentence together. Yeah, I just wonder whether we need those days. I do. Um, I do agree with you. And there, you know, there were weeks and but again, part of the reason I started my blog was because I just felt I was wasting so much time and I was trying to write stuff and failing and I was really blocked. And I just thought it might help if it might help get me going if I just wrote anything. Mm. Um, but I just and, and I think like if it's going on for a long period of time as a writer, you'd probably try to need to do something about it. And a pill would be very useful. Uh, obviously, I've kind of used caffeine and I used to use chocolate as a as a, a way of kind of just filling my brain with uh, stimulation in the hope that that would work. But I do think there's a lot to be said for um, for the downtime and the thinking time. And often I've really found this when writing scripts as well, that often like I'll sit at a desk for four hours and nothing and nothing's happening and then i'll get in the bath and start thinking about something else and then suddenly the entire plot will jump into my head i'm not thinking about it just suddenly go bang this is you know like i remember the maybe the second series of relativity i was really struggling to think what the what the arc was going to be of the series and i was in the bath and then just suddenly oh it's got to be this character's got to decide whether they're going to keep a baby or not and then it was just, oh, yeah. And then this, this, and this. And I had, I wasn't even thinking about it. So I think, because I think so much of it, of writing is about inspiration. And, and once you get to a certain point, it's just sort of colouring in. And it's, it's sort of like, okay, we've got it now. We can colour it in and we can perfect and make it a beautiful painting. I wish I could paint. Uh, we can make it fantastic. But but it's it's about knowing what's going to happen and, and and phrasing it right enough, I suppose. So I think we do need some of those days off. So I don't think I would take the pill every day, but it w- I wouldn't mind it for for some of the <laughs> some of the days when you when you when you really do stuff. But I I have found for me that I, I, in the in the around the time I was writing the Talking Cock book and around that time when I started the blog, I was I did let deadlines go past because I got so depressed about. Um, where things were going and why no one had really recognized how good all my stuff was yeah. <laughs> that uh, I kind of thought, what's the point? And I'd made some money and I kind of thought, what's the point now I've got some money. What's the point in even working? Um, but, uh, but generally, you know, I, I now I, you kind of, that it's, it's, it's not that bad. And, uh, you know, I want to I can't quite remember where I was going with this, but it's, you know, it's keep on keeping on. Yeah, I mean, you got you know, it's, you go through difficult times. So I would have of liked course. it then. I think. I think what I was saying, if I'd you know, if I could have been forced into writing then, and I regret, but I regret. I look back and I, I all those, I, I lost heart too much, and I understand why I did writing scripts mainly, uh, and I found it too difficult to put my heart and soul into writing scripts that I knew the stupid TV executives weren't going to say couldn't go on the TV anyway, uh, and so if I put a lot into it, and then they said no that was so painful that I sometimes didn't work, you know, at that point when I think I would have got things on made, if I'd really worked at them, I kind of backed off a little bit suddenly, but I was very good at hitting deadlines and that, and, and I'm better again now, but I find a deadline is that pill for me really is the, the deadline will, the, the yeah. humiliation it's, it's sharper in stand up because there's actually an audience there and it's much more embarrassing if you're shit, but uh, for a yeah. book, it's, it's it's harder to gauge. But, you know, well, it's such a privilege and it's such a wonderful thing, you know, and it's as much as you kind of look at your Amazon ranking as I was today, a day before publication and seeing myself at 74,000 or something and going, oh, fuck. Uh, The idea of, you know, the fact that you've got your 
book published is, you know, is most writers' absolute dream. So anything that happens above that, I think, is, oh, is the cherry on the cake. But if you write a book and you're happy with it, as I really am with this one, and it's someone thinks it's good enough to put in shops and print up, and, you know, some people might read and enjoy, that's, that's got to be your base level of it's gone well. Now let's see what else, what else happens. Uh, and the nice thing about, you know, the nice thing about this book is that I think it will, between the lines, will save some people's lives. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's just an, inc- that's an incredible thing to think that, you know, one in 270 men who read this book are going to get testicular cancer at some point. And some of them might have testicular cancer as they're reading it and not realise. And this book might help them realise. Uh, it certainly has happened from my tweets and stuff already two or three times. So it's, you know, that's, that's, it's nice to know that there's a, a mission behind it. Yeah. And it's, and it's also nice to think, you know, I don't, you know, it would, it would be great, wouldn't it, to sell Richard Osman numbers of books. And would it though? And, I don't know. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> and have all that money. But it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, what I like, I love that we, you know, we, you and I, I think are both in a position where we can write a book and if it does well, lovely. If it doesn't do well, our other stuff is still going to keep our head above water. And so yeah. we can, as we do within our podcast work, we can do exactly what we want to do. And yes, it's if, a it, very... if, if it resonates with someone, even if it's one or two people, that's that's all it needs to be. Absolutely. It is a very privileged position for which I think we're both very grateful. Yeah. And um, um, well, that's great, man. And congratulations once again. Thank you. Dan. Bollock Buster. Stick it on the cover. It's a bollock buster. It's good. Um, that is very nice. And I loved your book as well. People should must read uh, the Ramble book if they haven't already. And you're working on a, another book next year, possibly? Well, I mean, I, I, I do keep my journal fairly regularly. So I'm hoping that that's going to be a good source of uh, raiding things. But yes, writing about my mum and her last days trying to make it non-miserable you know yes. i think we're both <laughs> we both try and talk about those things and keep an eye on making them somewhat funny and putting some jokes in there so it's not just misery lit it is but, but you know again with your one especially is something with the i mean both my parents are alive so you know obviously I'm I'm pretty smug about that, uh, but I understand that that might not be the case <laughs> for, forever. So I think you know that's an experience that we all have to have to neg- navigate. Really, hopefully, because we would hope that our parents will die before we do. So uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's so important that you're writing about those things. It is, and and again, it's 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 funny and it's very moving. I think you know I love your vulnerability, Adam. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's the best thing about you. Thanks it's very nice. much. But, it's not, but the fact that you are the fact that you'll put it out there, I think it's, I think it's. Uh, well, so it's important. nice. It's nice that it's characterised as vulnerability rather than <laughs> needy oversharing. <laughs> well, you know, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't have needy oversharing. We wouldn't be exactly wouldn't be here. from one needy oversharer <laughs> to another. I bid you good luck and farewell. <laughs> Thank you very much, Adam. 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. RichardHerring.com slash gigs. GoFasterStripe.com for all my books, downloads, all that sort of shizzle. Oh, yeah, I know all the cool words. And um, would love to see you on the, on the Can I Have My Ball Back tour if you can make it. Bye. <laughs>